Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Bleeding Edge podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Benker, and in this episode, we talk to Dr. Steve Kayser about the power of team-based learning. Dr. Kayser, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, just by way of introduction, I'm just going to call out uh, some of your background and history. You have a PhD in computational neuroscience from Cambridge, a degree in physiology, and uh, in your life before academia, you spent time as a consultant working with companies like Logica and also as a researcher with Hewlett-Packard, with some pretty interesting projects. You're currently a senior lecturer at the University of Bath, and uh, you teach a, a, across a range of interdisciplinary MSc programs. Now, I have to say it's a very exciting list for me because it covers innovation, project management, product development, and sustainability. These are all things that uh, are very uh, dear to my heart. So I actually have a confession to make. We're going to have a real problem getting through the uh, podcast today and staying on track around team-based learning because I'm so fascinated about your views on circular economies, uh, the carbon economy, and, uh, and clearly uh, some of the things that you've written about around innovation. So we're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to keep me honest So because this is an important message, isn't it? Uh, really team-based learning. Give us a bit of a view of, of, of what it means to you because you're quite new to it, actually, if we think about how long team-based learning has been around. You, you've started practicing it, what, from around 2017? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so so team-based learning um, has actually been around for a long time. It's actually been around for about 40 years, um, but it's relatively new to, to the UK. Uh, it was originally introduced um, in, uh, in the States. And the motivator really for introducing it is pretty much my motivation, which is that um, if you're teaching in a, a, a small cohort, it's quite easy, if you like, um, to develop a highly interactive style where um, you have a kind of discussion, a seminar style. Everyone is involved. There's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of um, debates, a, a lot of argument. And so it's not about just talking at the students. It's about, um, it's about getting people involved in uh, learning with and from each other. The challenge comes when you try and scale that kind of high quality peer learning to large co cohorts. And when I talk large cohorts really becomes a problem when you get above 50 students. Um, and the exciting thing about team-based learning is that you can then start to scale it um, to, to really hundreds of students. Um, and so that, that's the, that was the motivator for me to try and, and make that happen. So I've been exploring it over the last uh, two or three years. Um, and one of the interesting things I've found is that the more I've explored it, the more it seems... Um, quite interesting in a, in a range of uh, environments. So not just higher education where I am, but also potentially schools uh, and corporates as well. So you're a board member of the team-based learning collaborative. So there you know, is a real uh, large and very developed uh, support structure for, for team-based learning. Just give us an idea of, of what does the uptake actually look like in, in, in the UK? Um, well, in the UK, there's um, um, there's a range of institutions. As I say, it's it's, um, it's a little bit 
uh, newer uh, in in the UK than in the States, but still, you know, a fair number of institutions are involved. Just off the top of my head, um, we've got places like um, Bradford and Keele and Imperial College, uh, and Bath has got into it. I've been doing some um, training with uh, with various other universities, including Kingston. Um, just next week, I'm going to Bristol University uh, and then UE University, West England as well. So it's it's gaining traction. Um, it's very far from you know the mainstream, but I think in quite a number of institutions, we've got uh, some level of interest and some uh, what you might call early adopters of the technology. So just give us an idea. You know what is really different about a team-based learning activity. So uh, in a traditional mode, you're obviously broadcasting a lecture, students are coming to class, they're taking work away, doing exercises. Um, But this seems to turn that whole model on its head because you actually start very early on with uh, an individual assessment. So before they've even attended any of the lectures. So just give us a bit of a flavor of kind of what's involved in the steps of constructing a team-based learning. Okay, so... um, I mean, firstly, a a slight uh, analogy, which is that um, when I talk about um, team-based learning, a lot of people think, well, that just means working with teams. Um, And it's not the case that um, just working with teams means that you're doing team-based learning. Team-based learning is quite a specific way of working with teams, a specific methodology that has been... um, kind of formulated over many years uh, and people have experimented with what's worked and what hasn't and as a result there's a series of of perhaps quite uh, prescriptive um, approaches uh, uh, and techniques and I'll I'll summarize these briefly Um, but also for many of your listeners to to help you understand it's um, for me it's a bit similar to agile agile product development agile software development uh, which is something I also have some experience with, um, which has evolved into a series of, um, you know, fairly precise recommendations uh, about exactly what you should do and how you should go about uh, running, let's say, uh, Scrum or continuous deployment or all of those sorts of things that go into Agile. Uh, And it's the same thing with team-based learning, that uh, um, there are a very um, specific set of things that you do that if you're not doing these you, you're not doing team-based learning it doesn't mean you're not doing high quality teaching but you're doing something that's that's slightly different so that said um the 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 principle um of team-based learning is to try and maintain this high quality uh, peer learning it draws on some of the principles, for example, of, of flipping, uh, which uh, many of you have heard of, I'm sure, which is the idea that rather than um, information, rather than the, the, the time that people come together in a socially connected way, which, by the way, could be online, um, that's not a great time for information delivery, for didactic one-way information delivery. Clearly, you need that, but wouldn't it make more sense to do that on demand um, and deliver that before people come together? So people, people, by the time they arrive at the lecture or the learning uh, environment, they're already prepared. They've already got that sort of content, which, of course, it's very easy to 
um, provide in, in uh, short video snippets, podcasts, um, uh, online games, quizzes, all of those sorts of things. So people have done that. They've arrived prepared. And now um, something quite interesting happens. Uh, we, do, uh, we do a test based on that pre-learning uh, that our participants have done. And that test is done twice. It's done firstly as an individual and then as a team. So students take a, a test, which is typically multiple choice, as I say, based on the pre-learning that they've done. And then without knowing what the answers are, they take the same test with their team. And something actually quite profound happens there. In a quantitative way, um, what happens is that the team performance is, of course, higher on average than the individual performance. You would expect that. But what I certainly didn't expect when I, I came across it is that on average, everybody's performance increases by working with the team. So I'll say that again, everybody's um, performance. So even the person that got the highest score on the individual test, their score is still increased by working with their team. And I, I didn't necessarily believe that that would happen until I found that it was happening in my cohorts. And that is a really important message to the uh, participants, which is that working with the team is a useful thing, even if you think that you are the, the most able, the most intelligent, the brightest, the most talented person in your team, it's still better for you to work with your, your team members. You will still improve your performance. And so that then, we then um, go on and having kind of set that social message, and we do this a number of times throughout the semester, so the message sort of gets progressively stronger as teams go through that kind of Tuckman stage of, of um, uh, forming, storming, and norming, uh, and then hopefully performing. Um, and we have a series of what we call application activities where the teams uh, work together to solve meaningful challenges in a fairly time-pressured environment. Um, so the intention here, again, is that you're using that time uh, where they're actually together, because that's a massive resource. People have chosen to come together at the same time and the same place, again, either physically the same place or online the same place. And if you're going to waste that opportunity just by talking at students, that makes kind of no sense. What makes more sense is to get um, the students, get the teams working together on meaningful problems, applying uh, that knowledge. So that's what we spend actually probably the majority of time doing, getting the teams working together on, on meaningful um, activity. In a university environment, of course, you have to assess performance. And for team performance, it's often a real problem for teams to get together. So I use that class time for them to do, um, uh, for them to actually work together and, and have um, some summative assessment. Um, I think those are the sort of main elements of it, except that there's one very important thing, which is we're trying to encourage a kind of individual and social accountability. And so teams are very much encouraged not just to work together, but to give each other constructive um, and formative uh, feedback 
on how they are performing as a team. There's team reflection built in and there is peer evaluation built in as well. Again, in a university environment, uh, marks are quite a powerful thing to, to, to give teeth, if you like, to the, uh, to the message that, you, um, that people are contributing to their team. So there is a form of peer evaluation as part of that as well. So really, it's kind of proving that the best network wins once once again. So or maybe that you know networks are ultimately more effective than clearly an individual. I just wanted to call out some of the um, stats actually that that you have set out in a paper. Um, so the individual uh, assessments improve uh, at something like fifty three percent. Uh, the team assessment, 72%. I'm not sure if I'm reading these numbers correctly, but um, uh, 11 out of 18 teams had a, um, a team uh, readiness assessment that outperformed uh, the best individual uh, readiness assessment. Um, yeah, I, well, actually, um, when, when I averaged over the whole... Um, the whole class. I mean, the, the average uplift is around 20%. And that's actually pretty robust uh, in the team-based learning literature, not, not mine. So, so it, on average, people's score goes up about 20%. And um, pretty much, once you've done a number of tests and you've averaged over that, um, it's pretty much for every student in the cohort. Sometimes there's one or two that, that don't quite get there, but it's pretty much for everybody that increases. That's a massive uplift in performance. Is there anything else that could deliver that kind of improvement? Yeah, I, I, I know it is. It is an extraordinary, and it's a it, it's worth highlighting that, and and it's a really important message to give to students because I, I'm sure we've all had that experience. I certainly have, where you feel that you're the one in the team that has the uh, the answer, uh, and you're feeling pretty confident about that. Um, but after a while, it becomes clear that that very quiet, diffident person in the team that was sort of a bit intimidated to speak up actually did have something that was worth saying. And you start kicking yourself and say, if only I'd listened to them, you know, that could have improved um, our solution. So it is that message that's really, uh, that's really getting through loud and clear. Well, I think what's encouraging for me is always as I think about you know, what's coming out of academia, and this is a methodology clearly for, for teaching, for learning, for higher education institutions. But I always think about how these things apply in the context of corporate development, corporate learning, corporate change. And one thing that I will say is as you describe the process, what we tend to do within systems training, which is part of uh, the work that we do for clients, um, we help their teams onboard new ways of working learn how to use new technologies. And what we've embedded there is this, you know, go away and watch the video, learn about the navigation, understand why we're doing this project before they actually come into a classroom environment. Now, I'm not suggesting that the rest of the process is based on any level of kind of team-based learning, but at least there I can see some really good parallels. And of course it makes sense because the time in the classroom, the time with the instructor-led workshop um, actually needs to be for a different level of conversation and discussion and practice. And yeah. so you're trying to take some of that, uh, let's say, heavy lifting of material that they consume, 
um, through self-paced learning on their own time, and that maximizes the, the, the class time. But it does rather sound like the changes that you have to make to accommodate this are quite uh, significant because you know not only are you talking about individual assessments, you're talking about team assessments, which count for yeah. a lot. Um, and uh, and I think um, you're also uh, obviously testing them in the traditional techniques, but um, boy, the content is different. The structure of your lecture is different. Just tell us a little bit about yeah. what is involved in optimizing course content for a team-based learning journey. Yeah, it is. It is. You're absolutely right. It is quite different. Um, and I'll be honest, it was quite a lot of work um, to, to set it up as well. Um, so I think one of the things that uh, starting straight from, from the design, rather than worrying about what people will know at the end of the course, you start thinking about what will people be able to do at the end of the course. There's much more skills based. What is it that, that our students will be able to do at the end and to a certain extent there's also a level of how will they behave you know what will they be like so what are the what are the behaviors and attitudes and skills that we're trying to um, foster so thinking about your outcomes we call them the, the learning outcomes um, in that really helps you decide then designing your activities in order to give you confidence that our students are able to do whatever it is that they're doing. So to take a really concrete example, let's say that you want them to be able to assess risk on a, on a project, right? So clearly you would want to have an application uh, activity, if you like, that is involved looking at a real project and figuring out the risks and working out mitigations for those, maybe construct a risk register, that kind of thing. So that just makes it a bit, a, a bit more concrete and easy to understand. So... Um, you you kind of work backwards like that. You work out the the um, the application activities that enable um, the students to demonstrate that they can um, that they can apply those skills. You're hoping them to be able to demonstrate, and then before that, you then think, well, okay. In order to do that, what are the core concepts that I need to know? Um, and then that's the stuff that is put into the pre-learning and tested um, in the, uh, you know, in those individual and team, uh, we call them readiness assurance um, tests. Um, there is, it's not that there is no lecturing in team-based learning. Um, we have two forms of lecturing. One, one is what you put into the pre-learning. So I try and make that relatively short, you know, five to 10 minute kind of, videos and, as I say, self-assessment activities, online games, those sorts of things. And then the second thing is the uh, we have these kind of clarifications within the class itself. Um, so after the test, one of the great things the test gives you as an instructor is it gives you kind of dashboard onto the class. So what happens is that in the individual test, you can see there are some questions that people are struggling with. And then on the team test, you see a lot of those things kind of resolved so that they're teaching each other so you do not need to waste any time 
because they've taught each other in a, in a sense they've triaged the the problems right they they've dealt with those kind of first level support things and then, but then typically there will be two or three questions let's say that the class as a whole seem to be struggling with so that's the point where you dive in and you kind of kind of give a mini clarification so much more efficient than the traditional way of doing it where you go in with no information at all and you give an hour's lecture covering a load of stuff, some of which the class will find completely obvious and some of which they will be completely lost about. This time, you're using demand-led teaching in order to focus on just those concepts the class find problematic. So you'd give that sort of, as I say, highly directed, targeted, mini-lecture, we call it sometimes, or clarification, demand-led teaching. Um, but that, all of that said, it requires quite a lot of commitment from the participants, and it, it feels very different. So, um, you know, if you think about the, the classic change curve, um, the, you know, as an instructor, I went through this kind of change curve as I've as a, as a adopted team-based learning, but just as importantly, probably more importantly, the students as well, they're encountering a new form of teaching, uh, a new form of instruction, a new form of learning. And it doesn't feel like learning to them. So unless you help them through the change curve, they're going to feel like, well, this isn't proper teaching. You know, I don't feel I'm being taught. And it feels like I'm having to do all the work here. You know, they they get those sorts of of feelings and you actually have to respond to those and help people to, to adapt. There's some fairly robust evidence that, that demonstrates quite um, probably about, about six months ago, um, a good study came out of Stanford, I think, that was showing that in this kind of active learning, and team-based learning is a form of active learning, um, what, it's an interesting dichotomy because on the one hand, students do better, um, but on the other hand, they don't like it as much. <laughs> So if you're looking at unit evaluations, you won't get, I can stand up and give a lecture to people and I can get quite good evaluation scores, but they don't get as good a learning experience. Is that so because we're just inherently lazy? and they have- oh, Well, it's partly familiarity and it is partly the fact that, yeah, you can turn up to a lecture and you can be entertained if you like. Entertained. Part entertained. Yeah. So you can have a great time, but you don't necessarily learn anything. Oh, that's not to say there isn't a place for a lecture. I mean, but a lecture is not really about delivery of content. Uh, I've come to the view, and I don't have any strong evidence to support this, but um, I have a view that, that, that a kind of lecture from an industry luminary or a thought leader or something like that is more about inspiration than it is about information delivery. I went up to uh, Oxford University three times to go and see Clayton Christensen talk about um, the innovator's dilemma. And they put all this stuff online. So I could have just watched it online. So I'm thinking, well, why did I go there? But there was something about physically being there and being inspired about that. And again, I bring in, you know, people from industry and I wouldn't get them to do a team-based learning session. I get them to talk about their experiences and inspire the students. But that's a different thing. To, uh, to, as I say, to um, teaching and content delivery. Well, I, the, the point really around inspiring is fascinating because I think in many cases, you, you know, we, 
we often don't remember what somebody inspiring actually said, but what we do remember is how they made us feel. Yes. And, uh, and this is really the key, actually. Um, and so that how you make somebody feel is a memory they can carry you know, with them for a lifetime. What you said, they might never, ever recall ever again, yeah. uh, despite, you know, clearly you're having a much higher rate of, let's say, integration of, of information through this process. Um, you, as you were talking about passive learning and, and, and active learning, I thought uh, interesting just to call out, there's a, a nice triangle that was set up by one of your colleagues at another university on one of the links you sent me. And um, what they said was, uh, you know, you, you remember 10% of what they read, 20% of what you hear you remember, 30% of what you see uh, you remember, 50% of what you see and hear you'll remember. And that is all sitting in that passive mm-hmm. learning box, which is interesting. And then we kind of flip to active learning. And, uh, and this is where it gets really interesting because 70% of what uh, they say and what they write, they retain uh, at a higher level. And 90% of what they do, they retain. And so, you know, this really seems to be the, the synthesis of, I guess, yeah. the benefit. It, it is about applying those skills. The other thing that surprised me is that um, – you know, there's this perception that you can't cover as much. It's all a bit, you know, because there's so many team activities, you can't cover the content. But it actually surprised me. I'm covering it more. I'm covering more stuff and in greater depth than I, I would do in traditional lecturing. So, to again, just to take one concrete example, if you talk about something many of your listeners, I'm sure, know is doing a, st- a standard um project management activity chart and, and doing critical path analysis, let's say, that's something that you would cover in a, in a lecture and you might have a little exercise and people might, you might feel happy at the end of it that at least 50% of the task do a critical path analysis. This is all covered for me in my pre-reading and in, our, in my test. So once we get onto class activities, we can get, then get onto the more subtle um, things like how do you crash critical path? What happens when you have resource um, constraints, you know, and, and and how how are you going to sort those out on a real project? So we get into the more detailed, more subtle, um, real world applications of it, rather than just the concepts. Now, does that start to highlight this potential difference between teaching and development? So, the way that I understand development and uh, the way that I, I practice it is that, uh, you know, I'm taught information and the application of that information leads to development. So, again, you're talking about uh, not just absorbing, you know, a broadcast lecture, going away and, and doing some homework. You're talking about a variety of individual and team-based interaction, but really the team-based interaction and not just one team, but many teams. And so people are exposed to intense different viewpoints within the group and they come to a common uh, consensus on the answer. And then they also observe how the other uh, small groups are are coming back. So, you know, is this really team-based learning or should we be calling this team-based development? So that, that's a very insightful point. I, I mentioned two, two things in that. The first thing is what I didn't say, and, and you picked up on it quite correctly, 
is the interaction within teams and the interaction between teams. So within teams, it's very supportive. People are learning from each other, people supporting each other because they're lifting the performance of the team. So they, they, they've, got, they've got great kind of um, motivation to do that. Then between teams, the dynamic is quite interesting. It's sort of a bit more competitive and teams are standing up and defending their choices against the other teams. Um, just as an aside, the design of application activities is quite important here. Because if you get every team to, let's say, construct a flip chart and go through it, it's like uh, we've all been in those situations, those workshops where every team stands up and goes through a complex flip chart. And by the end of it, the whole class is asleep. So what you want to do is you want the class, the teams to communicate something really simple, but is the, re of the result of a complex calculation. So let's say something like, here's a product, here's all the data, here's, you know, we're going to take it to market. How much are we going to charge? That's it. So the output is a number. It's a really simple number, really easy to communicate. The reasoning behind that is really complex. So you could go around all the teams and they could come out saying, oh, I'm going to charge this much, I'm going to charge this much. And then me as the customer, I would say, great, team three, let's say, um, well, they normally have a name, actually, which makes it more personal. But anyway, whatever that team is, you guys are great. I'm going to buy from you. At which point, all the other teams say, no, but you can't possibly sell it at that price. You'll go bankrupt because, you know, because X, Y, Z, because they've done the analysis. Now the teams are debating and talking uh, among each other and, of course, learning from each other. So there's intra-team and inter-team interaction. Now, to your point, which is, uh, is this development? I think that's a really sharp point, actually. And I think there is this case where you move from, from learning to development. Um, and I think that's probably true. I think, I think a large part, once you start moving into those application activities, you have moved into development. Well, maybe that's how you can sell it to those students that are saying, you know, we're, we're, this is too much hard work for us because you've actually changed the nature of the game for them. Which um, partly it brings me probably on to uh, the last subject I want to cover around the education space before I move on to industry and the application of this in industry. But um, maybe I'll be a little bit provocative with this one and ask you, what's the matter with MOOCs? <laughs> well, I've had some experience with MOOCs uh, as well. Um, Maybe just tell everybody what a MOOC is. First. Yes, sure. Okay, so so a MOOC is a massive uh, open online course, and uh, to me, the most important word in that is massive, because we've had online courses for decades, right? The fact that it's open, you know, just just means that anyone can can access it, and that's kind of important, um, but. The massive thing is potentially interesting because, um, you know, if you've got an online course of 50 or 100 or 200 students, you know, you can use normal classroom dynamics for that. But when you've got an online classroom of thousands, um, which quite often you do uh, in a MOOC, then you know, how are you going to manage those interactions? The only way you can do it is to distribute it. So it's it's peer learning at extreme scale, if you like. Um, and at the moment, it's a little bit difficult. I'm sure many of your listeners will have 
experience, you know, participating in a MOOC. And there's quite a lot of good content from other participants, but finding the right stuff is just impossible and keeping up with it. And you end up reading a whole range of comments, most of which just don't seem to have relevance for you or don't seem to have any kind of good content. Now and again, you find something really useful. It's really difficult to get that um, engagement. So what you really need to do is to, um, uh, what you really need to do is to, um, uh, is to kind of figure out a way of getting those online communities connected together so they can learn from each other effectively. Yeah, the code. And, and I don't think we're there yet. Well, the cohort is missing, and the mechanism for interaction for the cohort uh, is missing. And I think the thing that makes MOOC so fascinating is the extent of material that you can get online. But the thing that makes it so inaccessible is probably down to the fact of motivation. And one of the things that you have within a university or learning institution is motivation because you've signed up for it and, and you've kind of been set a schedule. So if you're too lazy to figure out what to do for the day, you might go to class. Uh, but then, of course, this is the thing that you're maximize, maximizing in team-based learning is your peer group. And the peer group seems to be largely missing from a MOOC. And because it's a, a cohort that doesn't know each other, they have no way of creating a network unless somebody else intervenes. And so I see many of them running uh, groups on, on Facebook. Um, I'm actually mm -hmm. doing the uh, Yale course in happiness uh, run by Laurie Santos at the moment. It's the most successful course in the, uh, the online course uh, in the history uh, of the university. And it's not even in a, in a domain of knowledge that they really had expertise, but Laurie Santos built this course and obviously it went viral. And um, what I can see is it's a very different experience uh, in the classroom because she does record and broadcast some of her classroom material versus my experience mm. as an individual sitting there. And as you say, I can go on the Facebook group, I can look at some of the comments and threads, which I find hugely insightful, but actually uh, it's probably not sophisticated enough because it's not really managed and we just don't have any allegiance to our performance. Um, whereas in other kind of developmental courses that I've done, having that team and having the competition, but also having that accountability piece uh, really creates, along with my own intrinsic motivation, actually creates a winning package. Uh, motivation isn't actually enough in this case because there's a lot of things that get in the way so um, I can really see how even just applying a team-based learning methodology in a MOOC context could revolutionize what MOOCs could deliver. Absolutely and it's a, it's an area I'm starting to think about I can't claim to have explored it in any detail yet um, but I'm certainly thinking about it and I would love to go in that direction. So it's a good segue really from here into the application of this into the corporate environment. And um, I think my, my thoughts here are, it seems that, you know, there's an obvious opportunity to apply this level of problem solving and indeed just the sheer capacity, the horsepower that is sitting within all those minds that are problem solving 
to align the content of problem solving to the issues that industry is facing and uh, and really making you know the experience relevant but also potentially value additive um, in that you know they're solving a problem that a company has today how how does academia go about doing that you mean it's okay. so we're not necessarily talking about team based learning here or we well, you know, for example, if you're, if you're applying a particular, uh, you, you know, concept that you've learned to a problem, a real world pro- problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the group activity, they've got a project uh, to go away and uh, apply this learning. Can they apply it to a problem that, um, you know, industry is facing and can you share it with industry? Um, well, if I, if I understand the, the question correctly, but, but guide me if I don't, the, um, it, you know, in a corporate environment, you would imagine, and certainly for, for our students, we're trying to get problems that aren't just toy problems, but are, you know, associated with real life projects, uh, and, and, and real life problems. Um, so, you know, within corporate environment that, that makes a lot of sense to try and apply some of the learnings to the work that's happening at, at the moment. So people take take those learnings and they apply them to to their own projects. Um, particularly working within teams that are trying to bond together and and get kind of solutions to the, to those um, to those problems. But I, I sense that there was something else in your question as well, which I. I well, I was quite inspired by uh, one of the case studies that you set out where you used a team-based learning uh, or aspects of it um, in solving for Brexit. And, uh, uh, yes. and, and I thought that was a really interesting use case. Um, yeah. and, and so that was really what was behind it. And I think for many businesses, you know, at that time, solving for Brexit was probably a, a big thing. Right now, it's solving for COVID. So if mm-hmm. they applied some of their innovation thinking or project management in the context of, you know, what does a response to C19 look like in this context? Um, then, you know, is there value in sharing some of that innovation and, and problem solving? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and just to reflect again, um, what I said about the design of those application activities, you want the results to be really simply um communicable right so if you're talking about what should our strategic response for covid be don't leave it as an open question say look we know that these are broadly speaking our options and typically most you know most organizations will probably have a limited range broadly of of strategic options uh, that they can take i mean in a university environment for example you know we're thinking about the teaching next semester and is it going to be online? Is it going to be socially distanced? Is it going to be delayed? You know, so we've got a range of, of options that we can consider. And then the groups would then choose between those options and, then, um, and they would champion one or the other. And then you can have that debate. And it's in the richness of the debate where they're defending one, one choice against another. That's where the nuance comes out um, about the different things. And it's a much more constructive way in a deeper way of exploring the, the relative advantages and disadvantages than than just having a kind of collective SWOT analysis or something like that. 
So the team is exercising its collaborative muscle the, the entire time. I think you construct permanent teams uh, as, as part of this. So once you're in your course, you're not changing team, as I understand it. So uh, the, this idea that has started to, uh, I think it's been around for quite some time in the industry, but it's certainly uh, made a bit more noise recently where they're looking at uh, hiring entire teams. And the idea behind hiring entire teams, mm. it's not new from a consulting model. You hire a team, typically. Um, mm. That's why you hire a consultancy. They already know how to work together. And uh, ideally, they're already performing when they land. Um, but this is starting to kind of permeate, permeate recruitment practices. And, sure. uh, and I'm wondering if you've seen any evidence that the uh, that industry is interested in hiring what might be the highest performing team, um, you know, in project management or innovation. Have you seen any evidence of that? That's very interesting. Um, we, I, I, I would say probably the fairest thing to say is I think it's plausible. Um, the, I don't have so much direct experience of it. One of the things we do in our program is we have what we call a practice track where we get teams of students to work on current business problems and we have a similar thing in our undergraduate engineering um thing and we get companies to come along and say look this is actually something we 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 want a team of students to work on and then they'll work with those, with those students and they're frequently quite impressed with the with the results of that now that usually doesn't uh, result in the in the company then saying right okay we're going to hire this team of students and even if they did the chances are the students are off you know going off to a variety of places but I can see it as a, as, a, as a plausible thing. One of the things that the research suggests and my experience bears out is that teams need to be working, you know, at least 20 hours and perhaps as much as 40 hours on meaningful activity between them before they actually get to that performing stage. They need to get to that and there's kind of it's it's hard to shortcut that really so one of the things that we're trying to do is by making teams work together on these meaningful activities during the classroom they get to that performing stage sooner than they would do if they were just sat in a lecture incredible and if we had to look at in deploying team-based learning as a construct as a method as a capability in organizations do you think there's a role for it yeah, I think it. I mean, as I say, in um, in education, a lot of it is about scaling up high quality peer learning. Now, in organisations, very often when you're talking about um, when you're talking about development, it, it, it's typically done in sort of smaller groups, so that's perhaps less of a uh, of an issue. But that idea of that um, bringing team cohesion and making teams work together more effectively and building in social accountability and team dynamics, all of those sorts of things I think are very relevant to corporate development. Fantastic. And I think that's a, a good place for us to start to close the show. I think we've gone a little bit over time, but uh, <laughs> I'm not going to worry about that because I thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation. A couple of quick fire questions for you. Sure. Uh, Dr. Kayser. So uh, this is a standard for, for me, given it's the bleeding edge, but I'd love to know what's the most cutting edge thing that you've seen recently? 
whether that be a technology, an idea, or a product. Come back to me on that. Come back to me on that. I'll, I'll, I'll come back in a, in a second about that. I'll, I'll think about it. Ask me another question, and I'll come back. So if you had uh, a group of your past students around you, uh, your favorite your favorite students with their, their, their favorite uh, professor, what do you think they would say your superpower is? <laughs> um, I don't know, inspiration maybe. I mean, I, I, you know, when, when students... Um, when students turn up, you know, they, they come up with all their aspirations and experience. And uh, one of my students, my favorite bit of feedback I ever got was a student saying to me, I, uh, you know, I'm not the same person as I was when I started the course. So that kind of personal transformation journey, if I can, if I can do my little bit to help them on that journey, then I'll feel I've made a worthwhile contribution. Well, uh, education is about changing minds, and uh, and so that is about the best compliment that you can uh, that you can get. If people want to get in touch with you and find out more about this, they want to collaborate with you on stuff. What 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 types of things uh, do you uh, like to get involved in? How can you help? Sure. Well, like I say, at the, at the moment, I'm particularly interested in. Um, you know, in the team-based learning in, in development, um, obviously in, in corporate development as well. Um, I am also interested in um, sustainability and, and circular economy um, and other approaches. Um, uh, and I think those are probably my main things at the moment. Um, I'm interested, the trouble is, as you've probably seen from my CV, I'm interested in all manner of things. Um, but right at the moment, um, those are the things that are occupying the, the, the attention. Well, well, I'm going to propose a uh, bleeding edge, cutting edge idea, which I, I hope that we can both share, because I uh, did share with Dr. Donish Mishra just yesterday a concept, and uh, I said to him, I think we're the first in the world to come up with this, because I can't find any evidence of it, and uh, I'll put, put it out there, and then, and then we'll finish up with the, with the show, but we have been designing product-centric value systems for circular economies. And uh, if you've never heard about that before, then hopefully that's the most cutting-edge thing that you've come across recently. Can you explain what that is, product-centric? What we've understood is that traditional value chain analysis doesn't support the complex problems doesn't support the process of solving the complex problems that we are facing in terms of sustainability and operational effectiveness. And the reason for that is that they are still largely looking within the four walls of the organization. And only in a limited fashion are they going into the supply chain of the organization. And of Mm -hmm. course, that's what a value chain is designed to do. But value systems are designed to connect value chains and they connect multiple organizations. The problem is they become terribly complex when we use right. the, the level of the organization. And so when we, when we break value systems down to be product centric, it means that we can solve the problem for the, uh, for the full life cycle of a zip. So YKK produced zips. This was Dr. Donish Mishra's example. 
and what they want to do is put their zip into 100 million items of clothing. And then at the end of that process, they want to harvest their zips because there's um, obviously valuable material in there, the, the metal content, uh, and they want to then repurpose that raw material back into well, they want to re put it back into a raw material and then repurpose it into zips. And of course, this is the idea about circular economies. And YKK can be obsessed about that because they only make zips. Whereas if I'm Tesco, I've got somewhere in the region mm. of 40,000 items in my, uh, you know, in, in my store. And so if I want to apply a sustainability issue, I have to break it down to each product because the solution is different for a cucumber different to a shirt, different to mm -hmm. bacon. And uh, there are some fantastic examples of how we can improve the quality of, uh, well, the health of consumers uh, if we can improve the quality of feed. And so one of the companies I've worked with in the past developed a polyphenol-rich uh, food uh, additive for chickens. When the chickens consume the food, uh, they um, have a high amount of polyphenols, which is a great antioxidant, and it removes the need for any kind of hormones or um, other uh, you know, products that they get injected with. Um, and so the meat actually improves in quality, and the, uh, the polyphenol-rich antioxidant is passed on to the human. The more of this meat they consume, the better uh, the antioxidant properties of that polyphenol that is in the feed are able to you know, benefit them. And so there's this really interesting concept that when we try to solve health, if we solve health at the level of these uh, you know, product-centric value systems for circular economies, then we get a much richer uh, product-specific mm. set of solutions. Yeah, I think this is quite tied into the notion of the um, symbiosis, industrial symbiosis, you know, the idea that, um, um, that the, you know, companies, the, the interaction between what companies are doing, you know, at, at a very simple level, the waste product from one company might be useful for, for uh, another for you know a different company um and the way that these things the way that these things interact i think there's a there's a very interesting thing and oddly enough we're getting our students to work on something quite similar at the moment looking at um um you know looking at low carbon vehicles and looking at it from a, a systems thinking perspective rather than just a sort of narrow uh, organizational perspective I think there's a lot of ideas. I mean, since you asked me, <laughs> I think there are a lot of ideas around this. They have been around for a little while, but they're being kicked about um, around what is needed to happen for a kind of sustainable or, or a circular economy. Um, some of them are to do with financial. So, for example, one of the ideas I had, uh, I, I heard, which again has been around for a while, is why is it that we're taxing human labour rather than taxing capital? you know, and resort, you know, resource intensive stuff, you know, why don't we just take, why don't we just uh, take the tax off um, people hiring labor um, and, and put the tax on using those resources that we're trying to, which intuitively makes sense to me, but I'm not an economist. So uh, I'm a bit hesitant to say that's definitely the answer. Um, but it's, but these sorts of thoughts um, are ones that are worth exploring. 
certainly one of the things that's happened most recent, obviously with the with the current situation that we're in with COVID, is that it's become very clear that actually we have the ability um, as a society to move very quickly when we have to. So the blocker is not our ability to move. The blocker is whether we feel it's important enough. Yes, and then whether the system of collaboration can very quickly start to manifest. And uh, I think this is the most promising aspect that has come out of this uh, you know, very difficult period. And it's very, mm. very difficult for business, there's no Absolutely. doubt, and for individuals. Um, the idea that we are able to collaborate yes. more closely and collaborate outside of our existing systems, because we've realized that in order to actually come back from this, it needs a systemic response. And yes. retail is particularly susceptible to this because they are susceptible to the supply chain. Absolutely. And uh, the retailers that I think take a collaborative partnership-based approach and really try and look after their supply chains are probably going to come out of this much stronger. And, uh, and that degree of collaboration, I think, is the game changer because we have a mechanism, we have a precedent. We always had the motivation. We just never really knew how to come together around it. And, uh, and so I think it's, you know, important that we really try and bring this to a conclusion. Um, the, the team-based learning is the seed, the beginning of highly skilled collaborative problem solving. And I think what you're doing is you're creating the next generation of leaders that, you know, have gone through COVID-19 um, mm. and have been practicing, you know, complex problem solving for hopefully most of their university careers. And I think that for me is a game changer and, uh, and certainly not something that I think we've, we've seen at this scale ever before. Absolutely, absolutely. So with that, uh, Dr. Kaiser, thank you very much. It's been absolutely fascinating talk to you, talking to you about the, the bleeding edge of uh, team-based learning, education and human development. And uh, I feel that we probably have another five of these podcasts at least for us to do uh, to finish the introductory shows. Uh, but thank you very much. Great. It's been great to be here. Thanks very much, Hugh. Cheers. This uh, was the Bleeding Edge podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Banker. We'll see you on the edge.